right. If you'll grab your Bibles and make your way to the Gospel of Matthew. If you need a Bible, there's some on the chairs there around you. And if you are using the ones from the chairs there around you, page 631. Or if it has a flame on the front of it, page 807. 807. As you're turning there, I've got um, jokes that are just racking up up here as people are leaving them for me. Um, in the shadow of our study on Deuteronomy, you'll appreciate this one. Why is Moses the worst man in the Bible? Because he broke all Ten Commandments. Yeah. Time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like a banana. Okay. All right, that's it for today. I got to spare you the rest. Just trying to dwindle this down. I appreciate you guys who, uh, who are doing this. They're not my dad jokes, so. Mm. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We just kicked this off last week, so if you're joining us today, uh, you're joining us at the beginning of a, of a new study, um, you're welcome to be able to go back and catch the one you missed last week, but you're not going to be lost without having caught that one. Um, Matthew, we started last week. Um, I want you to imagine for a moment, and I apologize ahead of time if this is going to step on some toes because it might hit too close to home. That's not my intent, but I think you'll quickly see that what I'm about to describe is a very unique situation. I want you to imagine for a moment that if you are a man, you're engaged to a woman, or that you have some friends, a man and a woman, who are engaged to one another to be married. Um, these friends of yours, or you and, and your, your, um, your fiancé, you have decided to go against the cultural norm, and you are not living together, you are not being physically intimate, you are waiting till your wedding night, you are keeping yourself pure, and you have kept yourself pure for all this time. And I want you to imagine for a moment, if, particularly if you are the man in that scenario, that somewhere three, four months or so into your engagement, your fiancé comes and very kind of awkwardly, very fearfully tells you that she's pregnant. Or your friends find out that that's the case. And, and it's, it's, it's early on into the engagement period. The wedding's not for another eight, maybe nine months away. And you had both made this commitment. You had declared and your intentions before one another. And now the woman has come up pregnant. And you know as the man or you know your friend, he's not involved in that. I want you to imagine the woman having to come and bring that kind of news to her fiance, what she must be feeling, the fear, some, some shame mixed in there perhaps. Um, I want you to imagine her parents, her parents who have vouched for her purity and her chastity to the, the groom-to-be and his family, and, and, then, and there was an agreement made based on that. I want you to imagine now the shame that is going to be brought upon the parents of that that woman, and, and the woman knows it, and the parents know it. I want you to imagine the man, how he's going to receive that, and all the different levels of emotion that will come his way. How his family, if, if, he, if they're still alive, because men would, would typically be a little older in biblical times, but I want you to imagine if the family of the man is still alive, how his family would feel. 
Like they've been robbed, cheated maybe. What about the small town that they live in and the news? Because you know news in small towns. You know news in small towns. And an even smaller faith community, you know how news spreads in a small faith community. The judgment, the ridicule, the distancing away, but you know they're talking about you while this is taking place. I want you to, I want you to take all that. I think, you're, I think you're getting it. Now I want you to add into that, there's a very unique twist to this particular situation because the way the circumstances have, have turned out It wasn't that the woman was going in and running around, that she was unfaithful, but through God's provision, because his favor rests upon this woman, she has found herself pregnant. That's what she has told you. And she's just trying to be obedient to the Lord. Nobody's going to understand that. They're not going to believe you. You say that because who... Who gets pregnant by any other means? Right? And yet she's bringing this news to you or you're hearing that this is what was communicated. How would you respond to that? What, what would you feel? What would the emotions that come, that, that, that rest upon you, that, that rise up within you? And you're just trying to be obedient to the Lord and in doing so, everyone that's close to you, everyone you love, the faith community you've been a part of, they have all pushed you away and you're trying to be obedient to the Lord. Well, those are the kinds of things that show up this morning in our story. They're, they're both divine things and they're human things. And it's messy. Now, we get it contained for us in a, a few paragraphs, maybe not even a few paragraphs, just a paragraph, really a few sentences, and it's very neat and it's very tidy, and yet there's nothing neat and tidy about this. There's nothing neat and tidy about this situation that we're going to read about, and so in order to be able to, to more appreciate, more fully understand, we have to enter into the human side of it without detaching ourselves from, from that, because these are real people. There's nothing special about the people that we're reading about leading up to this point. They were just people trying to be faithfully obedient to live for their God, awaiting the fulfillment of his promises. And they found themselves in this situation. There's both a human and a divine element to it. And and here's what we're going to see this morning that kind of undergirds all of it. Salvation from sins is found in the Savior, Yahweh sins. I did it on purpose, the rhyme. Salvation from sins is found in the Savior, Yahweh sins. See, that's what's at the heart of this story this morning. And yet, surrounding this simple, direct truth that salvation from sins is found in the Savior, Yahweh sins, is all of the complexity of humanity, all of the complexity of a fallen, sin-ridden humanity, all of the complexity of religiosity, legalism, all of the complexity of jealousy and envy and judgment and all that comes with a situation like this. But at the heart is this, salvation from sins is found in the Savior Yahweh sins. 
Now let's take a look and then we'll start to, to unpack some things here. So look with me at chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 is where we're starting this morning. And we're going to finish the chapter through 24 here. So chapter 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So we've got this situation. Matthew, last week, we looked at the genealogy. We looked at the names of the people who, who are in the line of the Messiah. We're going to come back to that. We, we saw that Matthew is being very particular to show that this particular Jesus, which would have been a common name, the Hebrew is Yeshua, this particular Yeshua, a common name, it would be like in our Hispanic communities today, Jesus, it would be like in our, in our, our, our gringo communities today, John or, or Joey or, or something extremely common. But this particular one, what Matthew's trying to show, this particular one is the promised one from God. And so we saw how, how he tried to, to show that last week. And so now we're, we're, we're zooming in a little further, and Matthew's helping us understand now this particular Jesus, the one who is the Christ, and you remember I told you Christ, not a last name. It might be helpful for you as you see Jesus Christ, insert the in between them. Jesus the Christ, because Christ is a title, it's a role, it's not a name. So Jesus the Christ. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, which we translate as Messiah. They're one and the same. It means the anointed one, the one who, who upon oil is being poured upon, right? And so Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed one, this is how it took place. And he introduces us once again to Mary, the mother. Now, Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, we've got to talk about this. Some of you are familiar with this. Some of you may not be. We don't have a category today in our culture that compares adequately to betrothal. We don't have a category. It's not even like engagement. Now, I know I use that because that's the thing that most, most, um, uh, we can most relate to, but it's not even like that. In order to be betrothed, there was a legally binding agreement. There was a contract that's being signed. There was a ceremony that was done. In, in the ancient Near East and Hebrew culture, now it's still true today, but it's less distinct. It's all kind of mushed together. But in Hebrew culture, there's two ceremonies. There's two phases to this relationship as you move toward being married. One would be what I'm going to just call in, in English, it's, it's been called betrothed. Hey, in order to be betrothed, a, a, a husband and, and the wife, their families would have made this uh, arrangement more than likely. The wife, uh, uh, the, the, the bride-to-be, her family would have uh, come to the table offering a certain type of price, a dowry, a bride price that they're bringing to the table to be able to give to the husband uh, as, as a gift. Um, and they're also vouching for their daughter's purity and chastity. Uh, the husband is coming, and he's going to be pro pro committing to providing a place, a home, and protection and cover for this woman. And there's going to be a ceremony that takes place. It's a legally binding agreement. They are married after this. They just refrain from living together and consummating the marriage, being physically intimate. Okay, they're not going that far yet. This is a legally binding agreement. Engagement for us, you break them off, and you can walk away. A betrothal, in order for it to be broke off, it required a legal divorce. It required the document that would be required for a divorce. 
And so the betrothal was that first phase, and they would go under the, this, this, this cover, the hoopah is what it's called, and they would go under this cover, and they would confirm their, their, their commitment to one another and what they're bringing to the table, the arrangements, and then they would drink the first cup of the ceremony, the first cup of wine of the ceremony, but they wouldn't go and drink the second one yet. The second comes at the wedding feast. They would drink the first cup as an affirmation that they are entering into this agreement together. Then they would go their separate ways, and, and, and usually for about a year period, and the, and the, the husband-to-be, he's going to go and he's preparing a house, so he's either building a house, and usually that's going to be building on top of his parents' house, right, so he can prepare a place for his bride. Um, meanwhile, the, the bride, she is working on getting her dowry together, what that, that price that she was going to bring to the table, she's working on getting that together, and she's working on preparing her wedding garments so that her wedding garments are ready for that wedding day. They're both very, very intentional in what they're doing as their part. That's the first part of the ceremony. And then the second part, when the, when the, when the, the groom is, is ready and he's got the place prepared and it's now the time, the father of the groom would announce that it's the time by blowing a shofar. That would be that ram's horn that we would usually just see. It's translated a trumpet. He would, he would blow the shofar and he would announce then the coming of the groom to take his bride. And with the groom would often come uh, uh, the, several of the, the people that would come with the groom. He would come with his company, his host. And they would come and the groom would come to his, his bride-to-be and he would, and, and some say literally would pick her up and literally carry her to the place where the ceremony was going to take place where they once again would come under and declare their intentions, and then in the course of that ceremony, drink the second cup that belongs to the wedding feast. That wedding feast would go seven days, and of course, they would then at that time consummate their marriage. Okay? That's, that's the, the, the concept. Now today in, in, in Hebrew culture, they still, they still hold to that, but what most people do is it's just one ceremony back to back, and the other ceremony quickly follows. Okay? But that's what was going on here. So they're betrothed. They're, not, they're, they're, they're married for all intents and purposes. There's a legally binding agreement which requires a divorce and requires faithfulness to one another, but they haven't consummated the marriage. Okay, I'm, I'm going to keep using that word. It's a good biblical word, and it's also a little bit of veiled, but you know what I mean if you don't ask me later. Um, and so when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, now before they came together, see, that's, that's pretty clear, right? Before, okay, she was found to be with child, but from the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the scandal, so to speak, from a human standpoint. See, because, because Joseph has not been involved in this process, and yet Mary finds herself to be pregnant. What Matthew tells us, though, is that is from the Holy Spirit. Now, I think I've got something here. Nope, not quite yet. All right, from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a just man, is unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her. Now, Joseph is a good Torah-observant Jew, meaning he knows the, the instruction of God. He knows that Deuteronomy chapter 22 talks about if a betrothed woman, that's, there's two scenarios in that, in that, one that might apply is if a betrothed woman, it says, goes to the city and is found to be lying with the man, then you should put them both to death. And we've looked at that when we went through Deuteronomy. The issue was, the assumption is, in the city, if she was um, not consenting, she would have called out, and everything was so close, you would have heard, and something could have been done. And so if you didn't hear, there must have been consent. Go back and listen to the sermon on Deuteronomy 22. So he's thinking about that. He's got a betrothed wife, and she's found to be pregnant, and nobody heard her call out. Okay? 
Well, in that case, she's to be put to death, stoned. He's also probably contemplating what we call Deuteronomy 24, and it, and it gives some kind of guidance for divorce. And, and, and it says if a man is, finds uh, uh, any, anything that he doesn't care for in his, in his wife, then he can divorce her, but he has to give her this document. And it was called a get. G-E-T is how we would spell it, a get. It's a legal document for divorce. He needs to give her the divorce certificate. That was for the, the woman's protection, but also for the man. And so that she would then be able to go and be able to prove that she's been divorced, and that would, that would allow her certain things. Joseph's a righteous man. He's a just man. He loves Mary. And he knows his options, and he doesn't want to see her put to death. He's not real clear on the situation, but as you can imagine, there's not really a whole lot of options going through his mind, right? So far at this point, he has no other explanation except for what Mary said. And even if Mary has said, it's from the Holy Spirit, if you're in Joseph's place, what are you doing? I mean, as long as you, as much as you love her and you want to believe the best about someone, have you ever known anyone to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit? You've heard, you know, myths and you've heard things from other nations about how their gods do the, something maybe kind of similar to what she might sound like she's describing, and yet you're going, I can't get behind that. But yet you don't want to see her put to death. And so he determines, I'm going to divorce her quietly. I'm going, to, I'm going to do what I need to do to give her that certificate of divorce, but I'm not going to take the option that, that requires putting her to death. All right. Verse 20. Let's look at verse 20. 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph's contemplating his options and how he wants to go forward, and as he's contemplating, he falls asleep. Dreams are visions of God given to you while you're sleeping, Visions are given to you while you're awake. That's the difference in the scripture. Dreams, you're asleep and God gives you a vision. A vision in the scripture is you're awake. Joseph has a dream. He's asleep. And in this dream, an angel of the Lord, a messenger of Yahweh, comes to him and says, don't fear. Now you can imagine there would be some fear. If, if he were to go forward and take Mary as his wife, there's shame. There's shame on top of shame. That's not his, his child. And so he's going to live with the shame of another, in his assumption, perhaps man's child, right? Or he's going he's to live with the shame that is brought not just on him and Mary, but both of their entire families. There's a lot of fear that would have been there with taking Mary. What will other people say? Well, he's a just man. He, he, he wants to live in observance of the Torah of God. And so he has to follow through with that. What will people think if he doesn't? Will they think he's excusing sin? Well, I think he's gone soft on sin. There's, there's a lot of fear. And so this angel leads off with, don't fear to take her. And then he explains this messenger, this angel, because that which is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. So it, it, it probably lines up with Mary's story, right? Because you imagine Mary would have already told him this because Luke tells us that Mary had already been visited by an angel. And Mary had already been, been told how this was going to take place. And so she's probably explain this to Joseph, and so now Mary's story is being corroborated by this messenger in a dream and saying, it is this child that's conceived in her, it is from the Holy Spirit. She's going to bear a son, 
and you're going to call his name Jesus. In Hebrew, that's Yeshua. That's important for this reason. I told you last week, Jesus, it's just how we got there. Yeshua uh, went into Greek and became Jesus, and then you add Latin and, and German, and, and eventually you get the, this name with a J on it, and it's Jesus. It is not the root of Zeus, the God. It's not, it's not that. This is just the English translation of the Greek word Jesus. Jesus is the, the translation in Greek from the Hebrew word Yeshua. Yeshua is his Hebrew name. That's important here because this next phrase, there's a play on words. You shall call his name Yeshua. And you can't capture it in the Greek, you can't capture it in the English, but remember I told you last week that we, we know that Matthew likely wrote his gospel in Hebrew. He likely wrote a translation in Hebrew and also in Greek. We don't have uh, many copies of Hebrew, but we have some, and the oldest ones that we do have are from the Greek. But here's why we, we one of the reasons we know that there was a Hebrew translation. Uh, you shall name him Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Like angels making a connection between Jesus' name and his mission. He's going to save for your sins. Now, in English, we don't, we don't get that. In Greek, we don't get that. But when you understand in Hebrew the word Yeshua, the name Yeshua, it means very specifically Yahweh saves or delivers. It does not mean God saves. I know we say that. But it means Yahweh saves. That's what's in the name. It's very specific. There's other words for God. There's other words for Elohim or El. This is very specific. Yahweh, this particular God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He saves and delivers. And so that, that name, his name shall be Yeshua. And then the next phrase here in Hebrew, he will save, sounds very similar. Here's, here's how it sounds. Just listen to it. You shall call his name Yeshua because Yoshia, he will save. You shall call his name Yeshua because Yeshia, Yoshia. And there was an intentional play on, on, on names. Jesus' mission is tied to his name. Okay? That's, that's why the angel's making that connection. You shall call him this, even though it's a common name. Lots of people named their, their sons Yeshua. And, and even though it's a common name, you shall name your son this name, Yeshua, because he's going to be the one that saves his people from their sins. All right. Here's Luke's version, just a quick verse from Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel speaking to Mary. The angel answered, she said, how is this going to happen? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will, call, will be called Holy, the Son of God. Here's what I want you to see. Last week when we start off, I mentioned to you the idea of recreation. And how the genealogy was one of the things that Matthew was doing was showing how God was recreating. He was with the coming of the Messiah. He was, he was recreating and how a ge genealogy is life after life after life. And it's showing the recreation of life, the continuation of life. And each time there's life, there's newness. And so the idea of being recreated, not in a, not in a, um, in the sense of um, being reincarnated. Don't think that. Don't think Hinduism, Buddhism, reincarnation, but making all things new, restoring things. And so we see that one of the things that takes place as it's described is the Holy Spirit is going to come over you and overshadow you, Mary. Look at Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, with, was without form and void. This is a statement about disorder moving to order, 
Chaos moving to order. God brings uh, order out of chaos. And darkness was over the face of the deep. The deep would be waters because remember the waters were separated so that there's waters above and waters below. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I think this is intentional on God's part and on Matthew's part. He is bringing them back to show the same God whose spirit was hovering over the waters of creation and bringing order out of chaos, recreating, is the same Holy Spirit who is hovering over Mary and the waters of the womb bringing forth the child who's going to bring about the new creation. Okay? Do you see it? Matthew is showing this is a continuation of the things that God has already begun. He is not, he is not drawing a hard distinction between what we call New Testament and what we call Old Testament. This is just simply a continuation of what has already taken place. Okay? So I just want to point that out to you just so you can see the, the, the continuity, the continuation there. All right, but back in verse 20, he says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from, his, from their sins. That's the mission. Save them from their sins. Now, we've got to go back, and we've got to ask, well, what, what would people have thought when they heard, save you from their sins? See, when we think about it, our hang-up is this, and it is a hang-up. Our hang-up is we come at the scriptures with a lens that is very influenced by our culture, by our biases. We think about it very linearly, and either or is how we think about it. Whereas this was not a, this was not a book that was written by a person who lived in a culture that was linear. They thought more cyclical than we do, more cycles than we do. They didn't think like A leads to B leads to C. They didn't think either or. They thought both and. They were okay with tension where we're not okay with tension, right? And so, so we tend to read this through an either or lens. And so then what that does is we look at a word like sins and we reduce it down and it means one thing. And we reduce it down to what it means for us and we say, well, he's going to save us from our sins, which means I'm going to be saved and I will be in heaven, and so then we read something like this, and we say, well, Jesus came so that I can be saved and, and be in heaven. But that's not why he came. That is just, I know, I, I see you. That is just one component of why he came. And when we reduce it down, we miss all. Now, here's, here's where I'm going. We just went through Deuteronomy. I told you, Deuteronomy is going to unlock for us things that you've never thought about in Matthew. We looked at when a Hebrew, a Jew, who is in the covenant, or comes under the covenant with Yahweh, what happens when they sin, when they disobey God, when they miss his standards? What happens? Sickness, disease, famine in the land. You're being ruled over by your enemies. These are the things that would come upon people who were in a covenant with their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when they hear he will save you from their sins, they're not simply thinking my soul is being saved for all eternity. They're thinking we're going to have our enemies, Rome, overthrown. They're thinking uh, the, 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 the famines that we've experienced in the land is going to be restored and we're going to have good crops again and our livestock is going to be fruitful. They're thinking their women who have been barren are going to produce children now where maybe they hadn't been before. The sicknesses and diseases that they are experiencing, they're thinking those two will be healed. 
He has come to save them from their sins, and it includes all of that. Because one of the primary missions of the Messiah was to call the people of God back to the covenant of God. Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the first message that's going to be. Repent, turn. The Hebrew word that we talked about was shuv, turn back. And what we find when we went through Deuteronomy is when the people of God were in the land and they were disobedient and they would find themselves coming under the curses that guard the covenant, Deuteronomy 28, okay, 27, 28, when they would find themselves under that, if they would then turn back to their God, he would restore them. And it would include all of those things. And so when the Messiah comes, he's coming to call the people back to faithfulness to the covenant of God. And as they were to turn back to faithfully obeying the covenant of God, they would then be saved from their sins, which means they're restored back into their relationship with the Lord, but it includes all of those other things as well, which is then why in the gospels you see such a strong emphasis and in the ministry of Jesus, a strong emphasis healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, because those things accompany his mission. Okay? Those things accompany coming, the, the coming kingdom of God coming to bear on the earth. All right, let's keep going. I saw some of your eyes when I said that. Make sure you heard me right. Okay? If you have a question, come talk to me afterwards. We don't want you walking away thinking I, I said something that would be heretical. 22. 22 and 23. And this all took place, Matthew says, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Here's what the prophet spoke. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. One of the things you're going to see Matthew do, and he's very intentional about that, is to show how the Messiah, how Jesus, fulfills that which was spoken in the Old Testament. How the things that were spoken throughout the, the Torah and throughout the writings and the prophets, how, how those things are pointing to this one who he's showing is the Messiah. And so he's going to go out of his way to show us throughout, and this was to fulfill what, what was spoken here, and this was to fulfill what was spoken here, and this was to fulfill what was spoken here. So the first time he does this, and he says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, he's going back to Isaiah. This is found in Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to flip to it now. So it's helpful to understand when, when, when Matthew or anybody in the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, you have to go back and look at the context of that Old Testament verse. You have to. You have to understand what was going on there so that we can then understand, well, what was this New Testament author trying to make a connection with? So we go back and we look at Isaiah. I'm just going to look at chapter 7, verse 10 through 17. Here's a little backdrop. There's a king named Ahaz. That name, if you look back in chapter 1, will be familiar to you because he is one of the people that are in the line of Jesus. He's the father of Hezekiah. Okay? This is important. This is one of the people that is in the line of the Messiah that Matthew has already mentioned in his previous verses. So King Ahaz, though, was under threat by some northern countries, including the northern kingdom, because by this point, Israel had split into two kingdoms, a southern and a northern, and the northern kingdom was, was, was following in disobedience a lot quicker than the southern kingdom. And so they're, they're, they're threatening the southern kingdom along with some other northern, northern nations like Assyria, Assyria. And so King Ahaz had made some alliances with some other, other kings in the event that he should come under attack. 
And he's fearful that he's going to be overthrown. The kingdom of Judah is going to be overthrown. That he's going to be overthrown from the throne. And so Jehovah tells Isaiah, go and take your son and go to Ahaz. Meet him at the aqueducts. And I want you to give him this message. And the message basically says, you're not going to be overthrown. You're going to be firmly established. And these kings, their, their threat is, is, is not going to take place. But in order to encourage Ahaz, Isaiah says, ask a sign of the Lord, any sign. Any sign, he says, it can be high or low, it doesn't matter, just ask. The Lord says, ask him for a sign and he will confirm this. And Ahaz in this moment says, no, I'm not going to do that. Okay. So then in that moment, Isaiah shifts. Okay, so that's where we're picking up. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol. That's the depths of the earth where the dead go, or high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David. So now, whereas Isaiah was talking to Ahaz, he now shifts, and what comes next is to the house of David. There's a shift in singular to plural. Okay, so what's about to take place is now directed toward the whole house of David, not simply Ahaz. Is it too little for you to be to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, and this is what Matthew uh, captures, behold the virgin, and this is the English translation, but the word is not virgin. It would be young maiden, young woman of marriageable age. The assumption is she would be a virgin. But that, just so you know, there's some discussion there. If you come to the Night of Biblical Conversations and you have questions about that, that's the kind of thing we can get into. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim, which is the northern kingdom of Israel, such days that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. That's the, the immediate context of what Matthew's, Matthew's quoting. And so the, the, the big picture is that God is confirming that there will be a sign. The sign will be the birth of a son in a unique way. And the birth of that son in a unique way is going to confirm that the throne of David will not be overthrown, but that there will be the one that God has promised on the throne of David. The kingdom of God, the promise that he made to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, will come to pass. Okay, that's being confirmed. Matthew picks that up, and Matthew, uh, and, and he quotes it, and he's saying, this is what's taking place with the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. And in doing that, here's what he does. We looked at uh, Genesis 3.15 last week where, where the curse is being put on the serpent because of deceiving the woman. And God says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, speaking of the woman's offspring, and you shall bruise his heel. Matthew, what he's doing here and what Isaiah was picking up on as well is that this seed of the woman is coming. Isaiah picked it up because back in Isaiah, I, I didn't point this out, but do you see the virgin? That's intentional. That's in the Hebrew. It's not a virgin, it's the virgin. Well, if you're Hebrew and you're going, well, which one? Well, there's no virgins in Isaiah's context. And so then you're going, well, what is he talking about? What the virgin would be prominent in their minds? Oh, the seed of the woman. 
And so Isaiah's looking back to the Genesis 3.15. Matthew then picks it up, and Matthew says, Mary is the woman that Genesis 3.15 was ultimately pointing to. And Yeshua, her son, is the seed. He's tying that all together. He's saying that promise that was made in Genesis 3, even though the world went back into a, a state of disorder because of sin, God is going to restore that. He's going to recreate. He's going to restore creation back to his intended purposes and his intended design. But it's going to come through the seed of the woman who's going to bruise the head of the serpent, even though the serpent's going to, going to bruise his heel. Matthew's making that connection. That's what's going on here. He's saying this, this took place. The reason that Mary then had to have the baby by the Holy Spirit and not by Joseph was so that prophecy could be fulfilled so that the people would know this is that virgin. This is that seed of the woman. This is the one. Okay? Now, Joseph not being involved means he's not Jesus' biological father. In Jewish culture, in order for a child to be considered Jewish, it mattered whether your mom was Jewish, not your dad. If you had a Jewish mom but a non-Jewish dad, the child was considered Jewish. Think about Timothy and Timothy, why Timothy was raised by his mom, his faithful mom and grandma. We don't know anything about his dad, but we know Timothy wasn't circumcised. So, the other thing that comes into play here is Jesus has got a divine parent, so to speak, and a human parent, so to speak. This does not make him 50-50. This does not make him like Thor. This does not make him like Hercules. Those are all based on Genesis 6, 1 through 4, where other angels came and were involved with women and they produced children. That's where those people, those little G-gods come from, that incident. What this does is it makes Jesus 100% God and 100% human all in one person. All in one person. All right. I'm going to keep going. And we're going to look at verse 24 and 25, our last two verses. So when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but he did not know her until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So what is Joseph's response to the revelation of God through the dream? Obedience. He obeyed. Despite the fear, despite the risk of shame, despite the things that would definitely come their way, he chose, because God had revealed things to him, he chose to obey that which was revealed. Now, I've said this to you before, and, and I, I think this plays out in Scripture pretty clearly. The clearer the revelation from God, the weightier the responsibility. The clearer the revelation from God, the weightier the responsibility. Joseph had a dream where the messenger told him exactly what was going on and exactly what he needed to do. God still speaks their dreams today. It is a common way that God speaks. Now, you and I, when we have dreams, we may not have them nearly as clearly as we would like, nor do they make as much sense as we would like. Like, we would look at a story like this and say, God, I'm, I'm looking for direction in my life. Can you give me something like that? Right, where I, you tell me exactly what's going on and exactly what I need to do, but that's usually not what happens. The clearer the revelation, the weightier the responsibility. But don't let, let something like this, where you go, well, my dreams aren't like that. Just ask God. 
And, and, and listen, I've seen people in this congregation who could never remember their dreams. And after being prayed for, now they remember dreams. If you're one of those people, you're going, well, I don't even know if I dream. You probably do, but maybe you're not remembering. And a simple God, would you help me to remember those dreams? If there's dreams from you, help me remember them. God, would you give me dreams from you? Now, then the next step is when you start to have dreams and, well, God, what does that mean? Write them down. Just write them down. I've got years of dreams written down that make absolutely no sense to me. But occasionally I'll go back and I'll look and I'll go, that was like three years ago, but oh, I didn't, oh, this is maybe unfolding right now. Things like that. So write them down because you never know what the Lord might do with them. And then you just ask for clarity. Now, because it's not clear, here's what I want to say to you. The clearer the revelation, the weightier the responsibility. When, when we have a dream as clear as that, it's easy to obey. When you and I have dreams today and we're going, well, I think that's from the Lord, you keep testing it. You keep testing it. And you, and you, and you prayerfully move forward with humility. You're, you're not likely going to base a major decision on a dream if it's a blur. But if God appears to you in a dream and he says, here's what's going on and here's what I need you to do, then you will. But I want you to know this is a common way that God speaks. And it was involved in the way that he was bringing about the Messiah into creation. All right. So he does as the angel said. That's the other thing. When God does speak to him, he responds with obedience. He knew. He knew it was God. He responds with obedience. So he takes his wife, but he doesn't know her. That's biblical for they did not consummate their marriage, even though he would have had the right to as a husband. After they got married, he sped the process up, they got married. He does not know her in a physically intimate sense, which means this. Nowhere here, I'm not knocking another, another, um, I'm not knocking another religion by any means. Nowhere here do we see anything about Mary remaining celibate. She has other sons and daughters. We know that from scriptures. Not cousins, they're, they're her sons and daughters. There's nothing in this text right here just observation that would suggest that Joseph never physically consummated. It's just not there. Okay? There's also a difference between talking about what's often called the virgin birth, which is about how Jesus came in, into the world, and the immaculate conception. There's a difference. This is not the immaculate conception. The immaculate conception is something that, that the Catholic Church teaches, and the Catholic Church teaches that Mary herself was also born in this way. That's just not here. Okay? That's, that's all I'm saying. It's just not here. Right? So, salvation from sin is found in the Savior Yahweh's sins. That's at the heart of this, and yet it is surrounded by all this complexity of humanity, divine revelation, in ways that, 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 are, that are so unique that it all just points to this is the one. This is the one whom God brings salvation. This is, and the name given was Emmanuel in Isaiah 7, 14, God with us. This is God coming to dwell among his people. He lives among his people. It means there's salvation in no other place. When I think about my need for a savior, I can't do anything about that on my own. I must go to the one that God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob provided. I cannot go to the one that I create. I cannot go to my own efforts. I cannot mix and match. I must look to the one who, as Matthew says to us, he's the one, the promised seed, the seed of the woman, the one born of the virgin. 
He's the one who fulfills the promises that God had spoken. I must look to him because the uniqueness of his coming, the fulfillment of the promises of God, and the name tied with the mission, his name shall be Yeshua because he will Yoshia. He will save his people from their sins. I must look to him. There's salvation in no other name. There's salvation in no other name. It also means that the mission of God carries forth through the people that bear that name. If I am in Christ, if I am in Jesus, then my mission is I go forward and I carry on the mission of Jesus. I'm not saving people from their sins, but I'm telling them about the one who does. And I do it in the power and the authority of the one who sends me which is how Matthew closes his gospel. So Father, would you now come behind me and give us clarity as to your word? Take the things that are true and let them sink down deep into fertile soil. Let it stir up our heart's affections for the one who is the Savior the one who is the promised one, the one who comes to make all things new, the one who made me new. And for those in this room today who have not been made new, like you say, those in Christ are a new creation. God, would you open their eyes today that they might see that? That they might then come to the one whom you have provided, the one whom you have sent, the one who bears your name, God with us that we might then see them come into the kingdom of God, that they might experience the life being brought from darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son. If there are things that I said that are false and that block our ears from that, teach us that we might correct those things and let us cling to what is true and let our lives be shaped and reshaped by those things. So show us where we need to do that. I'm going to invite our prayer team forward. If you guys will go ahead and grab a lanyard and make your way. And then in just a moment when we dismiss, if you would like prayer, maybe it's follow-up prayer from something earlier in the service. Maybe it's something else. We'll have some folks available for you um, to pray with you about whatever, sickness, disease, things going on in your life, questions about the gospel. They'll be available up front here as soon as we dismiss for you to to come and, and be prayed for. So you guys can make your way down there. And so as we depart from here, may Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh lift up his face upon you and give you peace. Amen. See you next week.